Hi, everybody. Hey, y'all. <laughs> no. <laughs> We're not doing this in Paula Dean. <laughs> It's Susanna. And now we're derailed from the jump, from the Let's Break It Down Politics and Pop Culture podcast. (laughs) I can't stop laughing. There's nothing wrong with making fun of Paula Dean for another week in a row, especially when we have such serious topics to talk about. But we can start again. Hey, y'all. It's Susanna. (laughs) And this is Isha, and we're welcoming you back to our second um, Let's Break It Down podcast. And... Let's thank everybody for sticking with us. Yes, I know. It's, um, we've had really intense news weeks both times that we have done it. It feels like it hasn't stopped. I don't imagine that it will, but mm-hmm. it feels really acute right now. So we are recording the day after the Trayvon Martin George Zimmerman trial closing. That's right. Almost exactly 24 hours after the verdict was read aloud. Absolutely. And we want to talk a little bit about the lessons from the verdict that we've learned. I mean, it was sort of a a not surprising situation that he has been deemed not guilty, that George Zimmerman has been sort of released into the public now with and going to get the gun back and everything. But there's something about this moment legally, culturally, that's really important. There's some things that we, we like to sort of touch base on and, and think about, think mm-hmm. through. Yeah, and I think, you know, we have been, I think the news coverage has been um, twofold. People have been talking about the repercussions of this verdict on our social and political systems and mm-hmm. the fabric of our society. And then a lot of people have been talking about the very personal experience of hearing the verdict Absolutely. and what it felt like, what it felt to hear that and um, the sort of dissonance that happens when you understand the legal reasons and the 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 legacy that of, of this country that we were not surprised by a not guilty verdict and yet at the same time it was um, horrific and shocking. Absolutely. Um, I definitely had a visceral reaction to the news. We had been Facebook chatting, and then I saw that the verdict, I got a a CNN alert on my phone. And usually these CNN alerts are not good for anything. They're just like, oh, because I don't, you know, I don't know. They're telling me some kind of foolishness, but for once. Something about the Kardashians. Something about the Kardashians, and bless their hearts, all 25 million of them. But... For once, the CNN alert was actually helpful, and they said that the the jury was about to render a a verdict. And, you know, I ran to the living room and put the TV on MSNBC, and they said not guilty. And I just felt it all through my body. Um, And I was on the phone with you, Isha. I spoke with some other people. And everyone had that same Mm -hmm. shocked, not shocked reaction to it, you know, Uh, especially in communities of color. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think that we are used to uh, a criminal injustice system rather than a criminal justice system. And so we know uh, to expect very little in the way of um, (sighs) recompense from our Mm -hmm. judicial system. Yeah. So, I mean, I think think it's just important to sort of start there because we've now done, this is our second podcast, and we started here last time, too, with this sort of... Um, the 
the physical and emotional reactions to the new, to news, political news that affects our lives. And I just think it's really important to note that people are mourning, people are grieving, people are holding their children closer. People are angry. People, people are, are rightfully and righteously angry. That's right. And, you know, I think that there's been a lot of policing out there of folk being like, you know, let's be disciplined in our response and let's be polite and let's not judge this person or judge that person. And I hear what people are trying to do. They're trying mm-hmm. to get folks not to go and act a monkey in the streets and burn down communities, right? Ain't nobody trying to riot, though. That's the real talk. Mm-hmm. People are rightfully angry, mm-hmm. right? And we are looking to our institutions across this country and seeing what we can do. People are, were doing that the day before, yesterday, yesterday, and they're doing it today, and they'll be doing it tomorrow. This is an ongoing process. Mm-hmm. But to try to police and corral people's feelings, I just don't think that it's appropriate at this moment, right? No, no. This is a respectability politics. It's not where it's at. It has not worked for us. And by respectability politics, I simply mean this notion that people will listen to us and afford us our full humanity if we only act in ways that are normatively respectful. And we've been doing this since the 19th century, and it has not worked fully. It's a strategy that has lots of holes in it. So today you want to cry and scream and throw some stuff down? Do it. Right. Do it. Because people out there killing our young people. That's right. And I think, so I think it's important for us to start there. I mean, we have a lot of things that we want to talk about in terms of the lessons from the verdict, but I think it's important for us to start with the very human experience of this trial, this story, that verdict, and just the moment that we're in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So one thing we want to touch um, base on is this notion of, of how whiteness has functioned throughout this trial. It's functioned in so many interesting ways. In the beginning, mm-hmm. there was all this stuff about, well, is George Zimmerman white? Well, he's a white Hispanic. He's a white Latino. He's a person of color. Therefore, it cannot be a racially motivated crime. I mean, just all types of things. But what we do know for mm-hmm. sure, and there was a great, um, there are a couple of great pieces out today, one on the nation about white supremacy mm-hmm. winning the trial, and other by our colleague, Brittany Cooper, uh, for Salon, talking about the trial as well and the role of of race, the the fact is that George Zimmerman, he could be a polka dot Latino. He could be whatever. He has harnessed whiteness Mm -hmm. in particular sorts of ways, right? Right. I don't know what he calls himself at the house, but he for damn sure acted like a white man all throughout the trial. That's right. And leveraged... Um, So this is an important thing about whiteness, right? That it's not in a vacuum and that it happens in concert with what blackness is. And that it is... um, it's functional, right? Like whiteness functions in particular ways. And so he, because whiteness was conferred onto him as a white Latino, which is an interesting notion in and of itself, the idea of being a white Latino. Um, and so, you know, it, because Hispanic and Latino, as we know, are not necessarily racial identities. Right. Um, they are I like to call myself a Blatino, half Dominican, you know, <laughs> over here, all black, you know. Okay. We've gone from Paula Dean. That's to right. Blatino. Blatino, right. Mm-hmm. So we're doing a whole lot here. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it's interesting because I think, I think um, a couple of things. One is the way that, w- the way that George Zimmerman allied himself with whiteness lent to, lent real power to him in this case. He was he and his defense team were willing to leverage um, depictions of whiteness and blackness 
uh, throughout the case, right? That he, the way Trayvon was portrayed as a young black threat, a thug, Mm -hmm. um, the images that they wanted to use, the story they wanted to tell, the way Rachel Jantel was treated, Mm -hmm. um, and the way that George Zimmerman's Um, the notion of self-defense came up, and it was a very raced notion of self-defense. People in the community, why didn't Trayvon just go straight home? Mm -hmm. All those various things were happening in the context of race. And and I think it's really important to talk about the mutability of whiteness um, and how it can be conferred um, onto non-black communities of color. Um, And that's really important for all of us to think about in terms of as we think about what is happening in our country around race um, and racial identity, because it is a strategy of of power and of white supremacy to confer whiteness onto people strategically so as to keep hierarchies in place. And I think that's really important for us to note right now and to see this trial and to see George Zimmerman as a clear case study. Absolutely. Don't get caught up in the game, people, because, you know, I've been having this conversation with several people. Put George Zimmerman at the border and see what happens with that $50 billion uh, fence that they're trying to build, Mm -hmm. right? I don't know how white he would be then if he was seen at the border as someone who's trying to cross over, right? Because appearances matter, right? So he had whiteness conferred upon him. He has this white father. He has all this sort of uh, white conservative backing around him, but if he was someone who was not named George Zimmerman, maybe he's, you know, Jorge somebody else, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And was at the border or was just at the Safeway at the at the supermarket or he himself was being, uh, walking home with an Arizona iced tea and a bag of Skittles and it was an actual Anglo in the car, he might be on the pavement uh, laid out. It's unclear, right? right. In this moment, he has whiteness conferred upon him, but let's not get it twisted. It's a a really strategic kind of placement of whiteness on him. And some people will take that on. They will pay the price of the ticket for whiteness Mm -hmm. in order to be able to harness the power that whiteness and white supremacy um, can garner for them. But not everybody has access to it, and black people for damn sure don't, class privilege notwithstanding. Right. Uh, So that's something to recognize in this moment, in this moment where the demographics are shifting, Mm -hmm. right? Where Where white people are increasingly becoming minorities. They're not minorities yet, right? But... Right. There, there will be a day. But that, but that fear, I think, so noting this in this case is really important as we get into our immigration debate, mm. as we get into the broader national conversation that we are beginning to have in fits and starts around the racial identity of this country. I think we have to be vigilant to think about both what it means to be a person of color and how whiteness functions politically and structurally. I think this is a lesson, the, one of the lessons from this verdict is how whiteness operates. Absolutely. And how and what kind of what kind of foregrounding this is doing, the way that this case has un, unfolded for our upcoming national conversation, ongoing national conversation about race. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So the other one of the other things that um, that I th- think is a lesson. Um, one of the the key catchphrases I've heard over and over again in the coverage. Um, after the verdict was read, was this notion that what we strive for is a colorblind society. Um, And to me, that's one of the deep and deeply rooted um, 
miscalculations and falsehoods of of liberalism, um, because what it does is it implies it ha- it's ahistorical and it's apolitical to sort of talk about colorblindness. Um, but what it also does is it ignores it ignores the structure and function of race um, in our legal systems, in particular. And so Absolutely. that's that critique of of one of liberalism and two of this narrative that we are pitched at a very early age that our that in our country's history in the the history of the United States that we are on an arc of progress um, steadily in, moving forward in civil rights law, right? <laughs> that, that our civil right, that our civil rights are consistently growing, um, and increasing and expanding and that that is the arc that we're on. And I think this, this moment is one to really, I don't know, have an eye open, have sort of like really just to be, sh- I feel jarred out of that in some ways myself, even though intellectually I've known that that's not how it works. Um, and I think this case shows us exactly what the limitations of the liberal notion of colorblindness are and what the limits are of the notion that we're on an arc of progress in our legal and civil rights trajectory. An arc of progress that's rooted in these really um, forward-thinking founding fathers, right? I mean, a bunch of these old white men who own slaves, really? I mean, right. the documents are beautiful. You read the Declaration of Independence. Right. And, you know, TJ was a great writer. I'm not going to knock him on that. But, I mean, <laughs> he had lots of holes in his thinking. Let's not get it twisted, right? And then this notion that, right. well, from 1776 to the present, it has just been a steady march on. Right. And we're just the best country ever, and we just have the most freedoms. When, if you look at the actual trajectory of history, it's much more complicated. There are the ebbs and flows, right? There are moments in early American history in different parts of the country where women could vote. White, free white women, let's not get it twisted, right? Because enslaved women and Native women and other folk, of course, could not vote, right? Uh, There are places where black men could vote uh, in the 19th century. Back and forth. There are times where after Reconstruct or during Reconstruction where we had uh, black men who were in uh, the the governmental system, who were senators and so on, right? And then that all gets peeled away. And so I think this moment is interesting in that speaking of the 19th century, it's sort of that moment where we've had all these gains in the 1960s, right? And then since the 1960s, -hmm. starting in the 1970s, immediately after all the civil rights gains, Mm -hmm. you see an intensification of uh, a racist backlash, of a sexist backlash, of a homophobic backlash. Everything that we're gaining Mm -hmm. is being sort of taken away, Mm -hmm. right? And now the narrative is that white people are the victims and that there's reverse racism and that Mm -hmm. people are taking things too far and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So to me, this is a very, very interesting moment, not unlike the late 19th, early 20th century where, you know, lynch law was on the land, the black codes and Jim Crow were being firmly entrenched all throughout the South and parts of the North. Right. in the West. And so it's we have to sort of think about how we react to this. And I would say, let's take a look at folk like Anna Julia Cooper and Ida B. Wells, right? Mm-hmm. And W.E.B. Du Bois, right? And let's not be complacent. Let's look at some of these older models. I'm not saying we have to do what they did, but we've been here before, is the mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. It's not a steady arc of progress. No. Every time we move forward, folk are trying to drag us back into the 19th, the 18th, the whatever century, right? right? Uh, and it, we just 
just can't believe that we can just sort of sit by and let our rights mm-hmm. be taken away from us. Right. And I think, you know, it, the historical context is so important in this moment because I do think we have been here before and we also are in a place. So the thing that's happening is, uh, a sort of contest, conversation, fight, struggle for the identity of this country. And it is happening in the context of race and demographics. It's also happening in the context of several international wars. Absolutely. And that a notion of um, foreign forces and terrorism that is very acutely tied to our discussion of our civil rights mm-hmm. here. Um, it is unfathomable to me that we could talk about being a, the country, a country that has the most freedoms when largely every member of Congress um, after 9-11 was perfectly complicit with scaling back access mm-hmm. to civil rights mm-hmm. and passing bill after bill, large scale, small scale bills that rolled back our ability to, um, you know, navigate political space, personal mm-hmm. space, interpersonal space, and now we're in a moment where surveillance is at its highest. Absolutely. So this that conversation is of a piece with this conversation about the arc of progress. So as much as we keep hearing this, this, this refrain that this is the country that has the most freedoms in the world, I think it is incumbent upon us to really look at that and to really talk about what is the arc that we're on, which direction are we going in, and what does it mean for our legacy of civil rights? I think the historical point is so important here. Girl, we're um, going to hell in a handbasket, and it's like... Or, uh, as I used to always think about in grad school, being on a roller coaster, uh, going down with no seatbelt. I mean, that's terrifying. Thank you for giving me my next nightmare. You're welcome. My God. I mean, that's pretty much what's happening. And hopefully there's somebody uh, or a group of people who have the switch where they can just stop the roller coaster because we are going down. We're going down fast. But I really appreciate your point about, you know, connecting sort of internationally because I think it's easy to have a myopic focus Mm -hmm. on U.S. American concerns because a lot of shit is going on. I mean, let's be real, right? Right. But we have to think about Syria and we have to think about what's going on in Egypt. We have to think about... What's happening economically in Central America, Mexico, all of these things are affecting our civil rights Mm -hmm. um, and our ability to identify as Americans or not and to be surveilled or, or not. Um, we should also talk a little bit about, um, so the act, the, the, the case, the Zimmerman case is essentially about an act of violence. And I think we have to talk about violence. Um, I think it's so important to make sure that we notice, um, that this is, you know, an issue of, of race. It's an issue of class. It's an issue of, um, identity and geography, and it's also an issue of, I mean, if you think about, just as much as we think about the violence that happened, um, that was directed against Trayvon, we also think in that same moment, we're talking about increasing cases of violence against women happening around the country, and we also notice the sort of fight for reproductive justice that's happening all around the country. We talked a little bit about it last time with Wendy Davis Mm -hmm. and what's been going on in Texas. And one of the things that's really important to me, two things to to point out, I think, here, is how these issues connect and how these identities intersect, is that violence against Trayvon, 
uh, the violence that his family has experienced sort of in losing their child. Um, that is part of the conversation that we're having. Let's talk about being pro-life, right? Ooh. Like, what does that mean in this context? What does it mean to be pro-life? I mean, one of the things that was so disgusting to me about the response from the defense team after the verdict was the jubilation and the joking. No respect for the fact that a young boy was murdered in cold blood. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, it's that conversation is of a people. Well, what does it mean for women of color, for black women to, to have children? Are we conferring upon them the right to parent those children in safety? And so I think in that way, the, the conversation about, well, we want to, um, there's ways to think about, about parenting and children, children and reproductive justice in this moment that ties what happens in, in communities where children are stolen all the time in any manner of ways by Mm -hmm. violence, by the foster system, by the prison industrial complex. Um, Parents are not being able to parent their children in communities of color and low-income communities around the country. And at the same time, we're having this conversation around how we're restricting people's access to their reproductive rights. I think those things are connected. It's part of a larger part of white supremacy. That's right. And not, never mind the fact that George Zimmerman himself, let's come back to the <sighs> micro level, right? George Zimmerman's first interaction with the criminal justice system was a domestic violence dispute. Let's not forget those mug shots. Right. And the argument that he made against the woman who had called the police at the time was that I, he said, I was threatened by her. She was threatening me. I acted in self-defense. That is the argument that he made against Trayvon. And so this notion of violence as perpetrated, the way that violence functions, and the way that our our criminal justice system decides who's a victim and who's mm. a perpetrator mm. is raced and it's gendered. And I just want to say this. I know that his father, Robert Zimmerman, I believe is his name, is a magistrate judge. That's a particular kind of judge. But you can't tell, can't nobody tell me that daddy didn't have anything to do or nothing to do with all these various scrapes and run-ins with the law. Mm-hmm. So you're going to go upside somebody's head. You're going to have a domestic dispute mm-hmm. and get off. You kill somebody. And you're able to go home that night and then actually be acquitted of any charges and and say that the child used the concrete sidewalk as a weapon. I mean, he must have a direct line to Satan because he is, (laughs) I mean, there has been a deal with the devil. I mean, I know it's white supremacy, but something is going on here. I mean, it's too many, it's too many things. And that at that same moment... There's a woman who shoots a warning shot. Oh, Marissa Alexander. Into the ceiling. Nobody is hurt. And it is a case of domestic violence and intimate partner violence in that in that moment. And she is sentenced to 20 years. And the same state attorney, state district attorney, um, whose name escapes me right now, but who was smiling and jovial and almost oh, looked yeah. like a member of the defense team herself at the press conference yesterday. That's Let's right. talk about that. But anyway... Uh, was instrumental in getting Marissa Alexander mm-hmm. locked up for 20 years because she said it was a crime because children were in the home and that was a major issue right. and what why if- did she children could have been hurt. Meanwhile, this man was abusing her, this man that she was firing right. a warning shot right. for. And, right? and George Zimmerman killed a, ch- a child. Kill somebody. Didn't name, didn't like, right. kill, you know, graze a bull. No. Trayvon ain't coming back. Right? right. You have to see him on the other side. And he's just right. at home chilling. He's eating nachos right now. He is like having his feet are up. 
on the couch, literally, right? So we have to think about, you know, who's a victim, who's safe. And particularly how we talk about violence, right? Violence against which bodies is considered um, acceptable to to our our criminal justice system. I mean, I think that's ex- like where's the who's the where's the burden of proof? Who's being asked to prove what? Mm-hmm. I mean, people have said for the past 15 months that Trayvon is on trial for his own murder. Absolutely. He the defense was having to prove that he was not the perpetrator when he Clearly, he has been, he's murdered, right? Mm-hmm. So, where is that? So, what is Marissa Alexander being asked to prove? What is Cece McDonald, who's still incarcerated, mm-hmm. being asked to prove about the hate crime that was perpetrated against That's her right. by right. a transphobic group of, of neo Nazis, right? Like, who is being asked to prove their victimhood and who is being asked to prove that they were under attack? And where are those? Where are those narratives going? And even a more basic question, whose story is even getting told, right? Because we barely talk about Marissa Alexander or Cece McDonald or Rakia Boyd or Ayanna Bird or Jordan Martin. And the other thing I want to say as well, I mean, so some people's stories don't even get told, right? Uh, I am particularly ashamed as a Floridian. I don't know if y'all know this about me, but I am from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The truth comes out, I know. Uh, And it's just not surprising to me at all that Florida has all these different cases of tomfoolery and shamtastery because it's an interesting state with a mixture of liberal and conservative and sort of Mm -hmm. cosmopolitan this and southern that and Caribbean, what you call it over here, and all of these things mixed together. But this conservative core at its base that really runs things. And we have this Tea Party governor, Rick Scott, who is a hot-ass, funky mess, right? Right. And the the state is really, every every time something bad happens, it's like, oh, oh, Florida in the news. Okay. Right. Well, they have done a very piecemeal, gradual, and, and dismantling of civil rights protections. Um, that this jury, it was okay for this jury to be six people. Right. Um, that it was okay for this jury to be almost exclusively white women. Um, and you know, that these are structural things, right? These are not like happenstance occurrences. Mm -hmm. The system is set up so that this is what it looks like. This is not an accident. This is not a mistake of justice. Justice was functioning exactly as it was supposed to in the criminal justice system. And I think that is the real lesson here for us. And that's why I think that People have been talking a lot about empathy and the role of understanding. Well, if we just could understand one another, if we could just um, learn one another's stories. And I don't want to discount mm-hmm. the validity of that. I think mm-hmm. knowing and learning one another's stories and being able to see the humanity in others is really important. But it's hard if if you are Don West and you have Rachel Jantel on the on the stand. Now, granted, I get that he is a defense attorney and his job is to eviscerate her or to attempt to eviscerate her. But something tells me, maybe it's the Instagram picture that he took with his old raggedy daughters with the ice cream, that even if he just saw <laughs> Rachel walking down the street, that he would not be able to see her as a human being. Something tell, I could mm. be wrong. I am not Miss Cleo. I'm not psychic. But I do believe <laughs> that it would be very hard for him to see see her humanity. And I know for damn sure he didn't see Trayvon's humanity. And he certainly didn't see the humanity of Sabrina Fulton or Tracy Martin, right? Those parents sit there day after day and see their son on trial when really he was the one who was murdered in cold blood. So empathy is not enough. 
this notion of like people of color getting white people to see our right. humanity. I'm really done. Right. I'm a teacher for a living, so I'm down with the teaching. But in my regular real life, I, right. I don't get paid to teach. And, and I don't have to teach somebody to see my humanity. Empathy is not going to be enough here. No, and it's the idea that if we can just come up with a perfect story, it puts us in the position of having to come up with a sympathetic narrative. And a perfect victim. And a perfect victim. Which we know never works. We know that never from TV. Works. We know that from racism all these years. Right. I mean, there's no perfect victim. There's no perfect victim of color. There's no perfect young black man victim who's going to garner the empathy. And so I think... We have to think about the limits of asking for that, of the limits of having that be our strategy in this moment, and to really call for institutional and structural change. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about changing the stand-your-ground laws. Let's talk about eliminating those because we know how racist the, implica- the application of those laws are. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about what juries should look like. And Absolutely. I think those structural calls for change um, have to accompany our calls for um, telling our stories and narratives and mm-hmm. empathy um, in this moment. And I think, you know, just the last thing about this, I think that if we're going to talk about empathy, I'm less interested in interracial empathy and more interested in intraracial or or interethnic Mm-hmm. among POCs, empathy, right? Mm-hmm. Because some, sometimes we're so harsh on ourselves with mm-hmm. our own internalized white supremacy and mm-hmm. homo antagonism and trans antagonism and whatever else, right? That we're not kind to ourselves. I'm right. more interested in the conversations right. that black folk, African Americans and Latinos can have that are productive. Right. You know what I'm saying? About empathy, about how we see one another. That's right. not to say that we can't have conversations across racial lines between um, uh, uh, white folk and, and people of color. However, right. this is a moment where white allies, if you're really an ally, this is your moment to step up and please don't expect a cookie, a cake, or a piece of pie. Just do what you need to do. That's just right. be an ally. That's and right. don't expect anything. Just ex- just hope that the world will become better. That will be your reward. That's it. You're not going to get a cake or a cookie or anything like that. No. Uh, that, that's right. what we, I think, need in this moment. If we're going to have empathy, let's have some empathy within our own communities. And white people have to do their own work. Boom. Boom. So... What we want to talk about for a little bit as well is this <laughs> cultural moment. So, you know, Isha knows this about me. I'm going to reveal this on the air. Uh-oh. I'm kind of a big nerd. I know a lot of things. You well, know anything, a lot of, Anything could be coming me. right now. That's true. I'm a big nerd. That's the reveal. Oh, my gosh. Such a surprise. Stop the Oh, my gosh. <laughs> anyway. The point is that I'm a particular kind of nerd. Like, I'm into the sci-fi and the fantasy and all that kind of stuff. With Isha, usually rolls her eyes at me. Although, I did get you to see Star Trek. As a good BFF. I went to see Les Mis. Let's not forget. (laughs) Okay, okay. Okay. So, this is not a competition. (laughs) I mean, that movie was, I mean, Russell Crowe. Ooh. But one day we'll have to share our story of seeing our man, um, what's his face? Wolverine. Oh, yes. Ooh. Next podcast. Stay Next tuned. Podcast. Um, mm. Susanna and I run in. That's right. With Hugh Jackman. That's right. And how we almost chased him down in my car. But that, anyway. So, <laughs> but we went to see Star Trek and it was great. Yeah, yes, it was great. That's it was right. great. Thank I feel you. like, 
I'm never going to live down the Les Mis. I feel like that's no, never going to happen. No, But what I've been reading in terms of um, pop culture recently is I've been reading World War Z, which has been on my shelf for a few years. Light beach reading. Light beach reading. You know, zombies and stuff. And so I'm really finding it very interesting. I'm not quite finished with it. I think I have, I don't know, 80 pages or so left, but I, I'm really into apocalyptic stuff. I think it comes from my background as a reformed evangelical Christian. And back in the day when I was an mm-hmm. avid churchgoer and uh, someone who like prayed around the flagpole and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> yes, I was one of those kids, um, you know, staying pure and all of that. So many years ago, so, so sad. <laughs> Uh, but I was really into the book of Revelations. I thought it was so interesting. I was uh-huh. like, oh, yeah, because, you know, Jesus is coming on a wing in a cloud, and I'm, I'm getting ready for him, right? right. Um, but I think that we have this really interesting cultural moment right now between your doomsday preppers, right. all your various apocalyptic movies, uh, the cultural tropes that are in vogue right now. So we had a right. moment with vampires a few years ago. Vampires are always sexy, and they'll come back. Don't mm-hmm. you worry. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and now it's zombies. We it's have The zombies. Walking Dead. We have World War Z, which has now been made into right. a film. Of course, we have stuff like 28 Days Later. I know, you know, folks are like, they weren't really zombies. Okay, I'm not. And all the end of the world narratives oh, also. The end of the world narratives. The, um, the ones that are related to climate change. The ones that are related to just a general apocalypse. Because mm-hmm. um, you could spend your whole weekend watching the History Channel, and they will tell you all the various ways that you can die. And right. I have done it. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. I've done it with my popcorn. I find it fascinating. So there's that part of me, like I said, that I think is rooted in my sort of evangelical past. But mm-hmm. part of it is also, I think, a real actual fear on the part of those invested in white supremacy. I mean, that's what these doomsday preppers, mm-hmm. I mean, the most sort of obvious example, I think, is with the Newtown shootings, mm-hmm. where the shooter's family is sort of linked to that movement. I'm not saying everyone who's a doomsday prepper is trying to go to the elementary school and shoot up all these innocent people. But what I am saying mm-hmm. is that there's this particular fear, this contagion of people of color, of blackness mm-hmm. in particular, that right. people are really concerned with. Zombie right. movies have traditionally been about, you know, people as, you know, mindless consumers, and there are any number critiques of analyses. Of critiques of capitalism. Right? I mean, so, but I think this moment is particularly complicated mm-hmm. with that kind of stuff, right? That's Where it's right. like, these people coming over the border. That's right. Oh, these nameless unskilled workers. Oh. I mean, That's people right. are losing their shit. Right. right? Scary, um, scary bodies, scary brown bodies, scary bodies that don't speak the language that we speak. Right. And Meanwhile, as an English professor, I can tell you that many people who profess to speak English as a first language, let me not even get into one. Let me not even get into it because, anyway. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so I think so. It's like the 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 way that we're choosing to be entertained. I think that the entire notion of a summer blockbuster has changed. There are these like epic movies now that are about saving saving ourselves from. Uh, impending disaster mm-hmm. all the time, mm-hmm. and whether that's in the form of of um, a zombie takeover, some sort of a pop post Batman post apocalyptic, right? Exactly. I mean, a and I vigilante. Exactly. So Superman uh, arming ourselves against um, threats that are foreign, um, arming ourselves against um, invasion, 
And so I think, I mean, that, that's our cultural moment is very important because it's, it's this, it's the same conversation ultimately about what is our national identity? Who are we fighting and what are we trying to get from them? Mm -hmm. Or what are we trying to protect? What is it that we're trying to protect? I think we keep hearing this in, from the whole conversation around reproductive rights from the conversation around, um, redistricting the Voting Rights Act. We talk about um, what it is that are like the what is it that we're trying to protect. We're talking about it around marriage, the deepening and strengthening of marriage as an institution in this country. Country, what is it that um, defines defines America, and who is being strategically defined out of it? And that's happening politically, and that's happening in the movies that we're watching. Mm-hmm. And because I'm a good BFF, I will go and watch World War Z with you. Yay! We're also going to try to, like, find a viewing of The Purge, which I think is going to be real bad, but I think will be really interesting. Yes, stay Mm -hmm. tuned. I think it will be really interesting, Mm -hmm. too, this notion of the rule of law and how significant it is. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think we're being primed. We're being culturally primed. We're being politically primed to start thinking about... Fear and terror. Absolutely. And protecting some very, like, very terrifying notion of what is going to happen to us if we don't fight against... If we don't corral these brown bodies. But what if you are the brown bodies? SOL. SOL. So we promise when we come back in two weeks that we will have some fun news, hopefully, if the world hasn't gone to hell in a handbasket. Well, at least have some movie reviews. We'll have some movie reviews and we're going to go see Alice Smith on the 17th. Yes. If y'all don't know about Alice Smith, you better get into it. She is an awesome sort of indie rock R&B just artist, voice. beautiful voice. So we are going to see her on the 17th and get healed by the tunes. That's right. Because music is a healer, if you didn't know. Now you know. So thanks for listening. You know, you can always find us on the web at letsbreakitdownshow.com or on uh, Facebook, uh, face- facebook.com. Backslash Let's Break It Down Show. Boom. And boom is not a part of it, but boom is what we say. And you can also follow us on Twitter. Uh, my handle is uh, I am Quonkadelic. And my handle is Isha P. Mm-hmm. And you can also listen to us on SoundCloud, too. We're working on Stitcher and iTunes, so stay tuned for that. And you can also email us questions, comments, relevant thoughts, and all of your thoughts and feelings to Let's Break It Down Show at Gmail. I'm just going to add the caveat of relevant there. We love your thoughts and feelings, but you know, we don't want to know all of them. Well, we're actually headed to a rally for uh, Trayvon Martin here in Atlanta. So we hope that you guys are uh, organizing and heading to similar um, speak outs and rallies in your communities. And if there is not one in your community, uh, we invite you to create one. Absolutely. Love you guys. Bye.